So I want to start this morning by talking about politics. Just kidding. Kind of, kind of kidding. Um, take you on a bit of a roller coaster there for a few seconds. Um, I wonder how many ulcers I activated. So, so actually what I do want to talk about is I want to um, introduce, before we get into the text, we're actually starting a series. We kind of started it last week, but kind of officially starting a new series through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and before getting into the text, I want to just kind of introduce um, what is actually a political idea in some sense. It's kind of unfashionable. It's kind of out of date. But it's just the idea of living under a king. That's just what I want to talk about. The idea of living under a king. It sounds so simple, but it's not something that we actually really reflect on or have much category for, I think, in our culture. Because if you, if you zoom out, I, I love history. I read a lot of, I love especially global kind of massive scope history reading. I read a lot of that. If you zoom out through kind of the development of human civilizations, right, um, if you zoom out globally, historically, and you look kind of at our age that we're living in right now, we, you will realize that we modern Americans in our uh, classically liberal democracy we're actually living in a really strange time if you compare us to the rest of human history. Like, we're the weird ones. We're kind of the aberration. Because we're living in a time, and I'll unpack this just for a minute, we're living in a time in which society, our society, the way we think about society and classes and rules and stuff like that, uh, our society's kind of been leveled, radically leveled out. So in other words, what I mean by that is that we think, we think it's just normal that every individual in a, in a society, every individual citizen should have a vote and should have a say in how their government works. And we think it's normal that the leaders of our governments think that uh, they should, uh, the leaders of our government should feel directly accountable to every citizen, right? That's kind of a weird idea in human history. Um, and we also believe, think it's normal that if you think something should be done, maybe you should run for office. You should try. Because every individual could become president, right? All those things are just kind of things that we think are normal about how society should run. Um, but for most of human history, for most of human history, um, pretty much the opposite of all those things was true, actually, for the average person. For most of human history, and including the history and the culture in which the Bible was written in, that's why I'm starting here, the culture that in which the, the biblical text was written, the people who wrote the biblical text, that culture... Um, society was not leveled out in that way. There was no concept of the average person having a vote or democracy or how uh, rulers you know, would be directly accountable um, in that sort of system. The idea that uh, the average person, your average farmer, right, or blacksmith or something, the idea that that person could maybe try to become king or rule, I mean, that's just ludicrous in the ancient world. It's just not how it worked. In the ancient world, and this is the point, well, this is the point I want to start on, in the ancient world, in the world of the Bible, you were simply born, most people were born under their rulers. The king was the king, the emperor was the emperor, the pharaoh was the pharaoh. That whole class of people was just that class of people. And the, most, most people just lived under them. The king was the king, here's the point. The king was the king, you had no say in that, you lived your life under that reality. And I'm talking about, I know I'm talking about like massive concepts of human history, and I, I don't have time to nuance everything the way I would like to, but the point that I'm trying to make, maybe you can see where I'm going with this, is that living under a king, living under a monarch, 
living under that ruler, a ruler that you did not choose or vote for, that idea relating to that ruler, that's just fundamentally different from how we Americans conceive of living under our rulers today. It's just a really different concept. Because if someone is king over you, then they are king whether you acknowledge it or not, right? They're king. There's no such thing as, well, we'll see how this king does, and then if we don't like him, we'll vote him out in a few years. That's just not how it works. Frankly, I'm a little, I worry that that actually is how we maybe handled Jesus or God. American Christians are, have been cultured, you know, in a way to think, well, we'll just, we'll try it and then we'll vote it out. <laughs> um, but here's the choice before you. And this is kind of my, well, honestly, it's kind of a one-point sermon, and I'm kind of giving it to you right now. Um, the real choice before you, if there is in fact a king, if there is in fact a king in rule, in reign, the real choice before you is will you pretend they are not the king? Will you willfully ignore that reality? Or will you give fealty and loyalty and allegiance and submit to the rule of the king? If there is a king over you, that's the choice. And I know that we kind of bristle at this today, again, for all the reasons I just mentioned. We bristle at this a bit, just culturally, I think. After all, the founding narrative of America is what? We threw off the rule of a king, (laughs) right? That is kind of like in our marrow, at least as our founding kind of story. America, we are America because we we rebelled against monarchy and we established a different way of doing things. But I think this is worth dwelling on today because if it is the case, and this is, this is the Christian claim on the world, on all of human history, the Christian claim is that there is a king, actually. For all of humanity, there is actually a king enthroned right now that is ruling, that does reign, whose kingdom is growing, whose kingdom is active. There actually is a king. And so if that's the case, and N.T. Wright is a theologian I love, and he's, he has a whole book called, which I would commend to you, he has a book called How God Became King on this topic. And the Christian claim is that Jesus is how God became king. The life of Jesus, which we're going to look at over the next few months, is the kingship of God over our world. And so if that is the case, it's a bold claim that Christians make, right? Then maybe we would do well to reconsider what it means to live under a king. Think about that, especially if it's a good king, right? And we believe Jesus is not just a good king, but actually the best king, the only king worth fealty and allegiance, the only king worth submitting yourself to, the one you can trust your life to and trust the direction of the world to, um, and that actually submitting yourself under his rule, under his reign, being loyal to that king is actually what will give you full life, right? That's what we believe. And so, that's my intro. <laughs> uh, we're starting this ser- sermon series. Like I said, this, is, this sermon series is going to take us from Christmas to Easter, actually. Actually, the week after Easter. We're going to go through um, the life of Jesus according to the Gospel of Matthew, the life and ministry of Jesus. Um, and Matthew in particular, uh, uh, Matthew is one of the four Gospel accounts we have in the New Testament. These different accounts tell the story of Jesus. Um, and they, do, they tell it in slightly different ways. And Matthew in particular is concerned with what it means to see Jesus as king which is why I started on that, that intro. And today, actually, we're going to look at a pretty famous story that's typically associated with Christmas, which is the visit of the Magi, or the wise men, um, at the birth of Jesus in particular. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to step through the story, 
It's actually pretty short. It's only uh, 12 verses. I'm going to step through it and comment on each kind of movement of the story as we go. Um, And that's how we're going to do this morning. So, here's how the story starts. That is a picture of Herod. King Herod. King Herod, actually, which is an important context here. Um, But here's here's verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. You can turn to it if you want. I'm reading out of the NRSV. But in the time of King Herod, that's an important setup. This is all happening under a king. King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage or come to worship him. Other translations say worship. Super familiar story. I know I'm tackling an extremely familiar story. This is the stuff of Christmas pageants and Veggie Tales videos. You know, it's like everyone knows this, probably, I'm guessing. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably heard this story. Um, I want to say just a few things about the context. Who, who are these people? What is going on? These wise men um, are astrologers. The word is magi. That's that actually the Greek word. Um, they are probably from, there's different theories on this. They're probably from um, maybe Persia. Uh, I am personally... Um, I like the theory that they're Arabian, that they're probably from the Arabian Peninsula somewhere. Um, the point, though, is that they are definitely not Jews. They're definitely not part of King Herod's kingdom, actually. So they're foreigners, they're scholars, they're astrologers because they study the heavens, heavenly signs. Um, and we know that because that's how they got to Jerusalem, because they saw something in the heavens. And it was very prominent in the ancient world to read the heavens and, and to look for signs, particularly when it comes to royalty and kings. The idea of kings and divinities and deities, it was all entangled and it was all believed to be kind of told in the skies. Um, so it was very common for this to be the case. And so these, just, just think about this. I'm trying to sink into the context of what's happening here because it's really crazy. There are these scholars from another kingdom, definitely not Jews, definitely not God worshipers, it seems, certainly not familiar with the Jewish texts. They see something in the skies that tells them that a new king is being born. And so they travel to Jerusalem. We're not sure how far they traveled. It could have been a while. It could have been quite some time. And it's, it's fair to say that King Herod the Great, is that's what he was known as. Probably he came up with that himself. Um, he was not expecting them. They show up totally unexpected in Jerusalem. They go to Jerusalem because it's the capital. It's the D.C. It's the Washington, D.C. of Judea, Judea the, the kingdom of Judea. They go to the palace that's what you'd expect. You see something in the skies that tells you royalty is going to be born. Where do you go? You go to the palace. They're at the White House. They're looking for the birthplace of royalty. Um, and one thing I want to point out that's easy to miss is the fact that they so easily get an audience with the king of Judea points to probably their status. They're probably wealthy. They're probably uh, clearly wealthy, clearly high status. They had enough wealth to travel for however how long it took to get there. And, of course, later we see the gifts they bring, which also indicates their wealth and status. But they also, this is another thing I want to point out, they likely have a parade or an entourage with them. They probably had a lot of people. The next verse says that all of Jerusalem kind of knew this was happening, so they probably had this massive parade that came through the city, went to the palace, got an audience with the king. Um, incidentally, I don't, I don't like skewering our beloved Christmas traditions, <laughs> necessarily. Necessarily. Um, but... The idea that there were just three wise men is not in this text. Uh, it's something that got built up over time, right? So, um, sorry, not sorry, I guess. There probably weren't three of them. Um, 
We, there could have been. We don't know. There might have been. There were three gifts. That's where that idea comes from. There were three gifts, and then tradition kind of built out from there. Um, realistically, the, the point I'm trying to make is that this was noticeable. They were high status. They traveled from far away. They got an audience with the king without really much effort. And there were probably a lot of people with them. Certainly a lot of people took notice. So moving on in the story. Whoops. Listen to this, man. When King Herod, it's interestingly, by the way, Matthew refers to King Herod as King Herod. Like he uses that title a lot in this section. It's really interesting. He doesn't do that in the entire rest of the story. But right here, there's, there's something interesting going on with his title being king. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened. And all, all Jerusalem with him, all Jerusalem was, was frightened apparently. Calling together the chief priests and scribes of the people, the Jewish uh, scribes, he inquired of them where this Messiah was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. So King Herod is surprised, he's shocked, he's scared. He was not expecting this visit from these foreign astrologers, scholars, wealthy influencers, apparently. Um, possibly, this is speculation, I, we don't know this, but I wonder, I wonder if he was a little surprised that his own court and, and experts missed whatever was going on in the heavenlies, right? They didn't see it. So maybe he's a little embarrassed, I don't know. Uh, he's certainly afraid of what's going on because whatever happened was enough to bring these dignitaries from another kingdom in a way that the whole city is noticing. I mean, people are gonna be, right, people are gonna be asking, who are these people, what are they saying? I mean, it's very likely that rumor's getting out that they're here to visit the new king or they, they're saying a new king was been born, right? So like Herod's gonna be, uh, not love that, that kind of rippling around his kingdom. But also, it's fascinating to me, so this, this reference here, when it says that it was written by the prophet, that's from Micah 5.2. If you want to look that up, you can read Micah chapter 5, verse 2. That's directly where this comes from. Um, it's fascinating to me that Herod missed the, the, whatever was going on in the skies. He missed that, but he also missed the prophecy in his own, the text of his own people, right? He had to like go asking experts to see what, what was going on here. So, by the way, I just thought this is, this is tangent, which links, if you heard my ser- uh, sermon on Zoom last week, or you can listen to the recording, I talked about the genealogy of Matthew right before this. The Micah quote, if you read uh, that full kind of context, Micah says that this king who's going to be born in, in Bethlehem is going to have links and origins in the ancient past. That's a phrase in there, which is when you see Matthew linking his genealogy back to Abraham, and then you see this, pro- it's really, I love how literally it all comes together there. It's really interesting. So there you go. But what I, what I want to say here, and this is a really important, I think, observation about the story. King Herod is not looking great. King Herod is kind of looking like a sham of a king. He didn't see the heavenly signs. He didn't know about the prophecy from his own sacred texts of his own people. So this is the situation. This is what's happening here. Foreign non-God-worshipping pagan astrologers show up out of nowhere because of something they read in the heavens, which has been prophesied in the texts of the very kingdom itself that they are visiting, and the Jews' own current king did not know about it. And here we see Matthew brilliantly contrasting two kings, King Herod and King Jesus. And in light of the theme of kingship that I've been kind of working with, this morning, I love how Matthew is totally subverting Herod. Jesus has done nothing yet. Jesus has been born. <laughs> That's the one thing he's done. He's probably had a few dirty diapers or whatever they use for diapers. That's about it. 
And he is radically destabilizing Herod's kingship as a baby. And I'm going to say a little bit more. Next week, we're going to look at the really brutal, dark, difficult story that comes right after this of Herod's uh, kind of explosion of violence and, and, and insecurities and paranoia about this. But if you know anything about Herod the Great, I'm going to say a little bit more about Herod next week. If you know anything about him historically, you know that he was ruthless. He was paranoid. He was actually politically pretty brilliant. He accrued a lot of power and wealth. He had a massive impact on the kingdom of Judea. Um, and Herod the Great, in some ways, is a reasonable name for him because of what he accomplished. But Herod the Great's kingship is going to end. It's going to end, and it's actually being destabilized right now by the birth of this child, this baby, to a what was likely a very poor family in a very humble situation. So Jesus' birth is upending Herod the Great's kingship. Herod's kingship is going to end. It is going to end, but Jesus' kingship, this baby's kingship, will not end. The kingdom that's being inaugurated by the birth of this child is going to be stable through all of human history, globally respected, change the face of the earth, and we believe as Christians it's going to literally be eternal. This ruler is going to rule forever, not Herod. And so what happens next? Herod secretly calls for these wise men. So after this whole thing has happened with the, with the, with the scholars and the scribes, pointing the, prof- <coughs> excuse me, the prophecy, Herod secretly calls for the wise men and learns from them. He interrogates them. He learns from them the exact time when the star appeared, and then he sent them, he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage or also go and worship him. So Herod has a private audience with these magi, I wonder if this private audience, like, get, get my court out of here. Let's, let me just talk to these people individually. I wonder if that was an attempt to save face. I don't know. Maybe. But I like to imagine how this played out. Herod grills the wise men for details. What did you see? How did you know? How did you interpret it? What does it mean? He grills them for details on what they've seen in the heavenly realm, demonstrating more and more his own ignorance of what's really going on here. And then it says he sends them to Bethlehem, and I find that a little laughable. The idea that Herod is the one who is dispatching these kings, as if they needed his permission or as if, as if he has any control here of what's happening. The Magi were going to find Jesus no matter what. They didn't need Herod's permission. They didn't need his instructions. In fact, the only instructions he gives them, they're going to ignore it, right? I wonder... Again, this is speculation. I just wonder how they reacted to his, yeah, I'd like to go worship the king, this, this new king I'd like to go worship. I wonder, I wonder what they thought at this point. Did they think he was genuine? Or were they starting to see that this was, that he, he was lying? We don't know. But we do know what happens next, and this is where I want to end. I want to pay attention to what the wise men do after this. So here's the rest of the story. After they had heard the king, referring to Herod, they set out. And there, ahead of them, went the star that they had seen at its rising. By the way, Bethlehem is about a 10-mile walk or so from Jerusalem. It's not very far. So they, they followed the star until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, man, I love this, they were overwhelmed with joy. It's the first thing I want to pay attention to. On entering the house, 
They saw the child with Mary, his mother. He could have been one or two years old by this point, by the way. They knelt down and paid him homage. They knelt down and worshipped the child. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. And that's it. That's the story of the wise men. We don't hear anything else about them. It's, it's crazy. It's a great story. But I want to reflect. This is our conclusion here. I want to reflect on the things the wise men did here and what, what this means for us. And I want to remind us of the setting here, right? It's a humble birth. They're and Mary and Joseph were probably poor, at least on the poorer end of things. The, the sacrifices they brought to the temple indicate that they were on the poorer end of the kind of socioeconomic spectrum at the time. A likely poor family, a humble setting, in a tiny village that's not the capital, right? If this entourage made a stir in the capital, how much more of a stir is it going to make in Bethlehem, right? They went from the palace of Herod into this village. And what in the world were Mary and Joseph thinking? Like when these guys show up, this parade shows up at their house and then worships their baby. I have a toddler. <laughs> I cannot imagine people from another country visiting my house to worship Eli, right? Like this just makes your, it brends your brain. Like think about what that felt like to them. And then these treasure chests open up. It's like a cartoon, you know, it's like the, they, the parade rolls in these treasure chests and gives them all these gifts. It's amazing. By the way, I wonder what they did with those. I've wondered that a lot. What they do with all that gold? I don't know. Probably not worth wondering too much. Um, but the family's unexpectedly surrounded by these high status, these foreign scholars who are showering them with these gifts. And I also wonder, were the Magi surprised at the, the humble kind of setting that they're stumbling on? Were they surprised that this is the king? But if they were surprised, they did not let that stop them. They were con- utterly convinced that this child was so important. And I want to pay attention now at the ending here to, to the three, three specific things the wise men did, three specific kind of actions. So the first thing, I underline each of them. The first thing is the realization that they have found this baby brings them great joy. Well, another translation says that they shouted with joy. I love like imagining that, like them shouting, like we found it, we found it. Um, and what I want to say about this is, of course, they were happy because their travels were done. They finally found the place. But also, I think that they were joyful because they recognized the importance of this baby, this child. What could be more exciting and joyful to recognize that a good king is here? And I want to pause on this for a second for us. Given, given the insanity of American politics, and you can cut right left on that like i'm saying that neutrally like that this given the insanity of just the political circus that we've been through for a long time not even just this past year or two so whatever your predilections are right left whatever i think this applies given the craziness isn't it a stirring thought to think a good king is here a good ruler is here? Someone whose rule and reign is stable? Who is trustworthy? Who is loving? I mean, gosh, even as I say it, isn't the, resp- isn't the proper response to a good king a just joy? Like, 
thank you. There's a good king. There is a good ruler. I love that they were overwhelmed with joy at this. I think we should be overwhelmed with joy as we reflect on it. Man, we have a good king. Anytime politics stress you out, just say that to yourself. I have a good king. <laughs> right? So they were joyful. Second, and I think joy is just, when you properly recognize who Jesus is, I think joy is just wells up. I think, it's, I think it's unavoidable. Second, upon their entrance, they bow and worship. I don't, I don't know what happened on some heart level for these wise men. Did they convert to, you know, I don't know, following Jesus? It doesn't seem that way because we never hear anything about them. Who knows? There's legends, there's stories, but we don't know. But I don't think that's the point. What I want to pay attention to right now is that these foreign, these pagan astrologers, out of a deep, joyful recognition of who they found, the immediate response flowing out of joy is respect, reverence, awe, and worship, and submission. Sacrifice, even. They gave wealth away. Out of their joyful reverence flowed all of these actions. And I think this is a model for us Joyful recognition, when you really, really recognize the goodness of Jesus as a good king, I think the joy that comes out of that immediately precedes worship and sacrifice and bowing and awe and submission of yourself. I think, I think when you recognize the power of Jesus as ruler, as king, you want to submit yourself to him, actually. I think that's what we see modeled here in this recognition by the Magi. And then finally, they do disobey the false king. They disobey Herod. They disobey the king they met in the palace, the king they had a private audience with. And I think that action, they, it demonstrates which king they thought was worth their obedience and, and, and um, actual reverence. They did not clearly revere Herod. They were actually afraid of and worshipful and reverent of Herod, they would not have disobeyed him, I think. And this man, th that point deserves a whole sermon on its own, and I, sa I say this with a little bit of fear and trembling. Again, <laughs> I need to trust the Holy Spirit to mediate these things in our community, but I will say that when loyalty to King Jesus conflicts with loyalty to an earthly ruler or king or earthly politic, our loyalty to Jesus has to win out. We have to put our allegiance in that direction. And that takes a lot of wisdom. It takes a lot of discernment communally as to what that actually means when we start bumping up against values of the world. But man, it ha our allegiance to King Jesus has to be the, the allegiance, the one that eclipses all others. So when I, I want to circle back now to where, where I started before we go to communion. Because I think this story tells us there is a king. A king has been born. There is a king enthroned right now whose kingdom will not end. And what I said at the beginning is you do, we as a community, have the choice to give that king fealty or submission or not. We have the choice to give that king loyalty and allegiance or not. We can recognize his rule and reign over us or not. We can be part of his kingdom or not. The invitation is there, and it's an invitation of joy, joy and worship. 
to give him fealty and allegiance is, no, is where your life is to be found, but it's also to be part of what God is doing in the world and reclaiming and restoring and making all things new. This king, whose kingdom is growing globally, may not feel like it's growing right now in our corner of America. I recognize it may not feel like that, even though I would contest even that notion. It may not feel like it, but this kingdom is growing globally. It's growing all over the world right now. And that kingdom represents self-giving love, represents, it's it's allegiant to, to King Jesus. That king is taking back rule and reign of the earth from the King Herods of the world and others. That king is taking back rule and reign as his kingdom grows. And he does it not through force, but through self-giving love. The growth and the, the inauguration and growth of the kingdom is through self-giving love. And this is where I want to go to communion. If I could have one or two LT members uh, come up to hand out the communion cups. Um, we're going to transition. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Ken. Ken and Sarah are going to come around and hand out the elements for communion. And as we turn to this, I'm going to guide us through that. I want to reflect on this. Because this this is Jesus' throne. We talk about Jesus being a king. His throne is a cross. He was lifted up on a cross. And when I say that his kingdom grows through self-giving love, the culmination and epitome of that is this act. And so when I say that Jesus is a good king, one that is worthy of our trust, one that is worthy of our allegiance, one that we can confidently give ourselves in submission to, we know that because of the cross. Because this king, I said, I've said this story before, but I was talking with a friend once about politics and politicians and and this person's not a Christian, but I said to him, like, I just said something like, you know what? When I look at all these politicians doing their arguing and, you know, and I think about this. Thank you. I look at the scene of politics and I think, man, what if, one of, what if I was as convinced that one of them would climb up on a cross for me as I am about Christ? right? This just powerfully inverts our notion of kingship, and yet it is Jesus' kingship. The extent of his love for us and for the world is to do this. And this is what we remember every time we take um, communion together. The broken body and the spilled blood of our king. And his story didn't end there, of course. He was victorious over death, powerfully vindicated by God in the resurrection as he walked out of that tomb. But he went through this. His kingship went through this to start his rule and reign. And so as we think about being part of his kingdom today, we do this regularly to remember our king. Let's remember what he did and who he is. And so I invite you now to open the top of your cup and take out the wafer. This wafer points to the broken flesh, the broken body of our king. And you can dip it in the juice, which points to the spilled blood of our king. I invite you to dip it and to take it now in remembrance of him.
Jesus said this is his body broken for you. This is his blood spilled for the new covenant, which he will drink again with us in the new heavens and the new earth. I invite you now to take the, the juice. And as you do so, I, I invite you to remember, to remember our king and to consider what it means to be fully allegiant to him today, to recognize with joy who he is, as the wise men did, to bow and worship and place yourselves at his feet. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for this story of the wise men. Um, I pray it would move us to a deeper loyalty to you today. I pray it would move us to deeper joy in recognition of who you are and move us to deeper submission to you and to your rule and reign. And Lord, would you use us and use this community to further that rule and reign in our city and in our state and in our country, Lord? Would your kingdom grow? Would your will be done as we recognize you as the true, rightful king? King of our hearts and our lives and ultimately king of our world. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.